0: to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. Welcome to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. I've learned that you don't do it alone. You learn so many different things from the, so many different coaches. That's an elite learning environment. Feel is not a problem. How you deal with it is a problem. How to be resilient.
1: How important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. To be a good
0: coach, you've got to get more than you take. What an interesting life it is to be a leader. Hello and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Doug McLean. Doug has joined us before. He's a former ice hockey head coach, GM and sportscaster, and he's just written a terrific new book called Draft Day, how hockey teams pick winners or get left behind. Doug is a great storyteller. And some of the highlights from our discussion were his view on the importance of scouting staff and how in ice hockey they have to cover Canada, the USA and key parts of Europe like Czech Republic, Slovenia, Slovakia, Sweden, Finland and Russia. How he talks about the tension between scouting and analytics and describes analytics as the salt and pepper you put on your meal and the story he tells about his biggest draft mistake and how it ended up costing him personally $30 million. This is a fun conversation about a great book, regardless of whether you know much about ice hockey. And I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, Today's podcast is brought to you by the Macquarie University Business School's MBA program. Designed to empower, challenge, and transform, the Macquarie MBA gives you the business skills and knowledge you need to succeed in an evolving global economy. The program bridges the gap between theory and real-world application, bringing together world-leading professors, executives, and industry partners To teach you how business can be used for good. I have just started working with the team at Macquarie on some projects and can attest to the quality of the people and material. To find out more, search for Macquarie University Business Schools MBA. And now please enjoy our interview with Doug McLean. You're listening to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. Doug McLean, hello and welcome back to the great coaches thanks. podcast thanks for
1: having me appreciate it appreciate
0: right. it we're happy to have you back because of course you've just written the book draft day how hockey teams pick winners or get left behind it's an absolute cracker it does it's got it is to do with hockey but the uh the lessons and the insights in there are for all sports i think as we'll get into today so congratulations and i hear it's on the bestseller list doug
1: yeah, I'm really pleased. Uh, Simon & Schuster notified me there recently that, well, I've, I've followed it every week. They keep sending me mes- notices that it's you it know, started week one on the bestseller list and 10 consecutive weeks in Canada on the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail bestseller list. So it's really, and uh, Indigo, which is a big uh, book uh, company, book sales place in Canada, the biggest, it's like a chapters type of thing. Um, Barnes and Noble type thing, but it it's been on their bestseller list and also their Christmas wish list, which really gave it a good plug, you know, for Black Friday and really. Uh, so I'm really pleased. And Simon Schuster just phoned me there and said they've done actually a second printing of the book. So that's uh, it's really encouraging because it was a lot of nights when I was reading this, I thought, uh, who the hell is going to read this book? <laughs> as I'd be going to sleep after after working on it. So it's been kind of fun to uh, to see some success from it, you know?
0: Well, how did they twist your arm to, into getting to write it? Because you tell a lot of stories that happen behind closed doors that people would not know yeah. about.
1: Well, it's kind of funny. I, I had a group approach me about doing a life storybook in my, in my home province in Prince Edward Island. And they said, well, I said, what's the deal? I said, well, if you give us $60,000, we'll write a book about you and then we'll split the profits. And I said, I don't think I'm going to do that. (laughs) So anyway, all of a sudden, uh, when I finished at Sportsnet, I, I got a call probably, you know, a week or so after from the publisher of Simon & Schuster asking if I would consider writing a book. And I said, you know, Kevin, I really, I really have no interest in writing a book. And he said, well, let me tell you about what we're thinking first. He said, you know, you the Moneyball, uh, Moneyball book come out about baseball a number of years ago, and it was a really successful book. And we'd like to do something similar to Moneyball, not quite as much of the analytics slant, but a book like that about the draft. And that that kind of intrigued me because it was my experiences in the draft, but it wasn't about me per se so I kind of I kind of like that approach and it it you know so it was it was a lot of work it took us three years to do this you know no it would it, it went on it was the COVID delayed it a little bit but it was a a lot of research and and a lot of work but Scott Morrison is a great writer a great friend and we we were a real team on this and uh he uh He was pretty funny. Let me just give you a quick story before you start here. I do the first six chapters here in Florida. I I outlined what I want the chapters to be, the names of it, And then I started filling in notes on each chapter, you know, what I wanted to say. So I wrote the first six chapters on my iPad, and I sent it to Scott. And the next morning, he calls me and he said, "Uh, don't you write in paragraphs when you write? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it came as one straight line, 25,000 words, one straight line. So I said, I go my daughter. I said, like, seriously, what's going on with my iPad? She said, Dad, you have to change the settings on your iPad to go periods and paragraphs and things. you got to do that in your notes section. So anyway, Scott didn't know what he was getting into. And then we, once we got that straight out, it was a little smoother. But it was, it was pretty funny when I thought, oh, man. <laughs> so it was fun.
0: I want to come back to this uh well I want to come back to this Moneyball idea actually because it's the book is very different from Moneyball I think because of the yeah. the age and the the experience of the people you're you're drafting but before we get there let's let's wind the clock and start start at the beginning so Doug where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today
1: Well I'm, I'm in Florida uh, we live in Florida 7 months of the year, uh, the last interview we did, I uh, was at my summer place in Prince Edward Island, the east coast of Canada. So we're exactly twenty-two uh, hundred and fifty miles from my cottage in Florida, in uh, in Delray Beach, Florida, and it's it's home here. We're here seven months, and we're up in Prince Edward Island four and a half months or so. So it's a it's a great combination, to be quite honest. You get the best of PEI in the summer. And you get the best of Florida here in the winter when it's uh, beautiful. So great golf, great beach, great. uh, It's When you're retired, it's sort of a a good place to be.
0: I don't mean to rub it in, uh, Doug, but it sounds like living in Sydney all year round to me.
1: Exactly. Um, That's what I'd say. It's a little bit like Australia.
0: (laughs) So, Doug, in the book, very early on, you start off, I think it's actually on the first or second page you start off by saying quote winning at the draft means having the right pieces in the front office now what's interesting about your career is you coached you coached all the way up to the stanley cup and then you had this amazing career as a gm which is a very different role from perhaps what a lot of people think about when they when they hear the word gm particularly in this part of the world but could you tell us just at the start by what are these most important pieces that you need to have in place
1: well you know to to make There's a real myth out there that the general manager is the guy that makes the the picks. And if the truth is known, as a general manager in the NHL, you're so busy with managing the team, managing the group, managing the coach, managing your scouting staff, managing, you know, and I was president as well, president of Columbus, as well as GM. And we were running a building where we'd have a thousand people working for us on game nights. You know, so, you know, we had multiple rinks in the city that we oversaw. So it was a, a big picture. But the number one thing with drafting is you've got to have a tremendous scouting staff. And your director of amateur scouting, Don Boyd, was my director of amateur scouting. And he and I, you know, select the staff, which is scouts that are all over the world, essentially. Not in Australia yet. Not in Australia yet. But, I mean, we had scouts in Czechoslovakia, Sweden, Finland, Russia, Canada, the United States, you know, and it it was about a $3 million a year budget to manage that group. And they would watch, every scout watches around 225 games a year, per se. So it's that staff that really, like as a GM, I would go and watch the top players with my chief scout. But I, you know, they make their list up, and you really ninety nine percent of the time you go by the list. Sometimes you don't, and you can get in trouble. But you typically go by the scouts' work, and they're dedicated, quality, quality people.
0: You talk in the book actually about scouting. It you say it's the lifeblood of a successful team, but you also you talk about this growing tension between. I dare I say it old school scouting you know feet on the street and yeah. analytics which is growing in all sports but how how do you define this this tension and what do the best scouts do well when it well, comes to really, the Well that's
1: really the analytics chapter was a really challenging chapter for me to write because analytics I mean we did all kinds of great stats when we were when i was involved but analytics has gone to a whole nother level since i left the business and i've always been intrigued by it so what happened in in Moneyball and baseball it was a real battle between the, the the old scouts and the new scouts and the analytics people and the scouts so i i i started and i phoned i had to have phoned 30 people presidents of teams gms of teams coaches of teams in the National Hockey League, and one guy would allow me to quote them, because it's a very, very intense issue within operations. Owners love analytics. Most new NHL owners are data-driven people. You know, they're in business, they're in, in businesses that rely on data, and they've become very data-oriented, and they love analytics. The GMs don't love it near as much. The scouts don't love it near as much. And the players don't even really like it. So I phone all these people. One guy would allow me to quote him in the book. One guy. Uh, two guys. Rick Dudley, scout for Carolina, who's been a veteran guy and a former GM, and Brian Burr. And other than that, they'd say, Doug, I will tell you everything about what goes on with our team, but you can't quote me. Because I don't want this coming back to my owner." There's been a couple of GMs fired because they didn't get along with the analytics department. That's how tenuous it's been in some organizations. So I, I, I love one quote a guy gave. He said, Doug, it's like going out to dinner. It's not the steak. It's not the potato. It's not the vegetables, not even the salad. Analytics is the salt and pepper you put on the meal. So it was being downplayed. But over the three years I wrote the book, I saw a dramatic change amongst the groups. And it was like, if the analytics guy has a great attitude and the scouts like him and he, they, they, they started, I noticed as the book progressed, they started to work better together. And I think it all comes back to leadership in the organization. I really do. The leader, the president, general manager is the guy that dictates how analytics is going to be accepted in the organization. And I think over time, it really evolved. I had one analytics guy say to me, and I quote him in the book, I didn't quote his name because he would have been fired, but he said, hey, I'm telling you, Doug, if the scouts, this is the head of analytics, if the scouts don't buy in to analytics, they're going to be washed out to sea. Well, that's not really the case. So, it, it but I saw it really evolve, and I saw it at the end of the book that they were starting to work together. It's going to be a part of the business. And to me, there's good information there. It's not the end-all and be-all, but it's a tool. It's a tool. You'll never replace scouts in the field. You never will replace scouts in the field. But it's a great tool to add and help the scouts have another look and, and maybe go back and look at the player again because the numbers are saying this, the scout's not seeing that. That's what I like about it. But I'm telling you, I was talking to a scout at this year's draft. He said, Doug, they're a pain in the ass, these guys. They're a pain in the ass. So it hasn't gone 100%, but it's certainly changing to the better.
0: No, nah, just listening to you, I'm, rem- I'm reminded I last, uh, last summer I read Theo Epstein's book about the Cubs, yeah. and he said he used to get his scouts together every year and he'd say to them, what are the top five players who could thrive with the change of club? I mean, how do you, how do you use analytics for something like that?
1: Well, yeah. And you know what? It just, I think you, it's like the, the GMs all say, how do you use analytics when you look at block shots? And you say, okay, he blocked a shot with his pad. What about the guy that slides down and blocks it with his face? Does that show in analytics? So, I mean, there's all kinds of intangibles that are still part of the game. I love John Madden's quote, the famous Major League Baseball manager, who's written a book, great book, by the way, and he said in it, when I talk to my analytics people, I want to know what time it is. I don't want to know how the watch was built, and I don't want them in my dressing room, and I don't want them in my in my or in my clubhouse, and I don't want them on my bench. But I like the information. So, and Stevie Eisman even talked about that. We're still a long way in the book, but we're still a long way from, you know. Knowing what it's all about, so it's still it's still a work in progress, but I tell you, I learned talking to many analytics people and many hockey people in in my research that it is starting to be used more and more as a tool, and I think that's smart.
0: There's a great quote in the book, Doug, from Sam Pollock, and he says to you, "People build teams in certain ways. I've always traded for futures." not pasts, and you talk yeah. about this this quote staying with you through your career, but could you tell us how you've applied this thinking at the draft table?
1: Well, I think, you know, what Sam meant by that is he had a good hockey team and expansion came into the league when Sam, when the league went from 6 to 12 teams and then up to 18 and then do, you know, it's it was expanding during his career. So what he used it for was he would trade veteran players And trade them to expansion teams for draft choices. And when you look, maybe the greatest GM in the history of hockey, Sam Pollock acquired Guy LaFleur on a future by trading a a veteran player for a potential or for a future first round pick. He acquired Bob Gainey. He acquired Ken Dryden. He acquired Larry Robinson. He acquired Carboneau. He acquired the greatest players that played in that era for the Montreal Canadiens by trading veteran players and acquiring draft picks. To and that's what kept the Canadiens as the one of the greatest teams in the history, and and Sam Pollock won nine Stanley Cups as a general manager. Like most GMs, dream of winning one. He won nine. So you know. It, and that's what it was. He, a really interesting story, and it's in the book, Ken Dryden, the greatest goaltender in the history of the Montreal Canadiens. In 1974, he was drafted by the Boston Bruins. The next day, Sam Pollock traded for him. Ken Dryden didn't find out for 10 years after that he had been originally drafted by the Boston Bruins. Greatest gold hunter in the history of the Canadians was drafted by the Boston Bruins and acquired the next day and didn't know it for 10 years because in those days it was a secret draft and nobody knew who drafted who till you got a call from the team the next day or whenever saying, hey, we drafted you. So Ken gets a call saying you're a member of the Montreal Canadiens. He thought he was drafted by them and he had been drafted by Boston, who, by the way, was Montreal's biggest rival through Pollock's time in Montreal.
0: like there's a there's a lesson in there isn't there and it doesn't necessarily just apply to sport and it's around assessing the right time to give up your futures for a missing yeah. piece you've got today
1: yeah that, that's really critical part of being a successful gm now when i was a gm of an expansion team it, you you i would trade i would trade a draft pick for a veteran guy but I would trade later picks. I, I never traded one first round pick in my career because I was always petrified to do that. I probably should have traded a couple on the bad picks I made, but I, you know, I did, but you know, it was just, I, I traded a second round pick once for a goaltender that we thought was going to be a franchise goaltender. But most of my trades were later picks. And you always tried then to work back, to get that pick back, back maybe for another year. So, You know what? But if you're a team, if you're a general manager of a contending team, and you go into the trade deadline in the NHL, they're throwing around first round picks for fun right now. They're throwing them around. They'll trade a first round pick to get a veteran guy, and a lot of times it comes back to bite them. It really does. I, I said in the book, and it's a really important. It was a premise of the, my premise of really the entire book. Since 1990, every Stanley Cup winner, except this past year, had at least 10 of their own draft picks on their team. That right there tells you everything you need to know about the importance of the draft. St. Louis Blues won the Cup a few years ago, first time in their franchise history. They had 10 of their own draft picks on the team. New Jersey always had 10, 12, 13 draft picks on their team. Detroit Red Wings, a great teams they had. 10, 12 draft picks on their team of their own pick. LA, the same thing. Chicago, the same thing. Multiple Fran- Stanley Cup champions, always 10 plus of their own draft picks. I, I was blown away that people had never heard that before. Hockey people had never heard that before. And I got that from a great friend of mine who worked for me, Bob Strum, who 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 researched this and, and presented it to me. And I thought, oh man, that is bizarre. But as a hockey guy, I didn't know that. And I'm thinking how that's – so that was a lot of the premise of the book, how important it is to draft well and keep your players, your draft picks, to building a winner.
0: Doug, there's a great passage in the book. Could I um, could I ask you to read it, actually, before I ask the question?
1: Yeah, let me just find it here on my phone. So here's, uh, here's the, the comment. When you look back at the history of the draft, it is at best a crapshoot but one thing is for certain mistakes made with the first picks especially in the top five overall picks can be devastating to a franchise it can set them back for years GM's careers and legacies are often determined by these selections it must be remembered of course that GM's are selecting players who are 18 years of age and don't always develop as hope or at the speed teams had predicted and need. That's the toughest part of scouting right there, 18-year-old kids who aren't developed.
0: So how do you do it, Doug? What's the criteria that you could well, use to, to try and predict whether an 18-year-old at 23, 24 is going to be one of those 10 that you mentioned?
1: Well, the first all, and I mentioned this in the book, most teams uh, say, okay, we know from 18 on he's gonna probably grow at least one more inch and gain 20 pounds that's what that's what they sort of think is gonna happen well that's fine but i'm telling you 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 just go off the basic principles you go off skill how is his skating how is his puck skills how is his shot you look at all his skills and that's all. you And then you really do a deep dive into his character. That's why the regional scouts are so important. The guys that are in the communities, you know, you have your you have your chief Ontario scout, OHL scout, Ontario scout. But then you have bird dogs in communities, and their job is to find out what his parents are like, what he's what's he like as a kid, what do his teachers say. Find out as much as you can about the kid. He's 6'1, his father is 6'4, but his mother's 5'3. How big is he gonna get? You know, so you 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 do a lot, but you only all you can do is project and look at the talent of that and the character of that particular player and hope that he's gonna develop. And you know what? I'm telling you this. If you're 15% successful in the draft as a GM, you've had a hell of a career. 15%. That's, that's hard to believe. And that's why GMs are always hammering away. The NFL draft is 22, 23 years of age. You know, why are we – we're selecting 18-year-olds because they're scared of their scare to labor laws. That's the, that's the whole rationale. It's crazy. And you know what? It costs a lot of GMs their jobs and a lot of coaches their jobs. I don't know what soccer is. Uh, or what you guys call, what do you guys call soccer over there? Aussie Aussie rules. Aussie
0: rules. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know what, it it just, you know, they're they're selecting soccer players, but they probably, you know, I, I don't know how, I don't know if it's any different, but it's tough. It really, really is tough. And that's why it's when you read through the book, you read about a lot of mistakes that are made, a lot.
0: I didn't want to ask about the mistake. Because it's in the book, <laughs> I. But I think people listening, Doug, are going to want to know. You talk about fifteen percent success rate, but there is a decision in the book that you say cost you thirty million dollars. <laughs> Without yeah, opening any funny. wounds, could I ask you to give us a quick sketch of it?
1: Well, it's pretty funny. I. It was a. It was a Sid Crosby draft, and Sid Crosby was a. Was an unbelievable talent, generational player. We had the sixth pick in that draft, and uh, you know what? We ended up picking Gilbert Brule in that draft. And my my scouts, it was an unbelievable battle all year with my scouts. Brule was considered the Sid Crosby of the of Western Canada. Sid was the greatest player, and he was in the eastern part of Canada. And it was a battle all year between my scouts. Crosby or Brule? Crosby or Brule? Those were the two names we talked about. Who was the better player? My scouts were telling me Brule was going to be the next Steve Eisenman. People all around the hockey world loved Brule. And my scout Don Boyd loved a kid in Slovenia by the name of Anse Kopitar, who I went and watched at the World Championships in Sweden and met with him and his parents and... He was a terrific kid and a terrific player. And the prior year, I had had Nick Jaredov, who was a Russian, who I drafted, maybe the most skilled player I'd ever seen in my life. And he was a problem. First, he was in the Russian Army, and there's a chapter in the book on him. But we go into the draft with Kopitar rated fifth and Brule rated sixth. And I'm thinking, OK, it's not going to matter because Montreal will probably take Brulee at five and then we will take Copetar at six. Well, Montreal take Pat, uh, Carey Price at five, who went on, who was rated right 22nd on our list and all the other teams had him in the second round of the draft and they step up and take this this goaltender. And I said, Oh no, here I go. I mean, I got, now I got to make the call between, and I made the call to take Brulé over Kopitar. I was nervous. And all I said, how do I go with the Slovenian kid over a Canadian? How do I do that? I mean, this is so great. How do I, and I, and I took, so, and Nick Kiprios, who was my buddy that I worked on TV with in Canada asked me that la- a year ago, when I was writing the book, what I thought it cost me to draft Kopitar or Brule ahead of Kopitar. Brule went six, Kopitar went 11. So there's a lot of guys after me that made a mistake on Kopitar as well. He went 11th in the draft. And I said, well, Nick, I think it probably personally cost me about 30 million bucks because if I would have taken Kopitar, I'd probably still be a GM in the NHL and I'd be making probably 5 million a year. And other, and without that, I'm writing a book and, I might make a hundred grand off
0: this book, so. <laughs> Doug, I'm sorry to have asked you the question, but I could see your body <laughs> language as you were telling me about it. But look, let's let's move on. This in the book, what is absolutely fascinating is when you talk about the people that sit around the draft table, when you talk about all the different iterations of that. You talk about the oh. discussions that goes on and the debate and the time pressure. It's it's wonderful reading, but yeah. I wanted to ask you. You've sat around that table so many times. What prevents people from thinking clearly when they're at that table?
1: Well, you know what? They, they, you, you get the, the war rooms are different because you're really, you know, you're, you're really discussing things. But when you get at the draft table, you typically just go off the list. The 100-man list you go in with, that gets you through seven rounds. And it just, you know, there's debate, not at the first, typically not the first pick, typically not your second pick, but every round there's a debate as to, because everybody like, because what happens is you, you start with your hundred man list and there's guys there that are still available that you never expected to be there because somebody in the first round, makes a big move and takes somebody you may have late in the second round and they picked them in the first round. So it opens up. So there's debates because your list dramatically can change by who the people ahead of you draft. And then that's when the fight started the draft and the timeouts and the guys getting ticked off and mad at each other. But it's I'll tell you what, it is the most exciting part of the job. Sitting there at the draft and making those critical decisions. And I'm telling you, every team leaves every draft thrilled with who they selected and who they got. And then a couple of years later, you're not as happy, <laughs> typically.
0: <laughs> what happens with the owner? Are they in your ear as well?
1: The owners uh, typically aren't in your ear. I, I talked about one. There were a, a buddy by Neil Smith who was a longtime GM of the Rangers and he was with the New York Islanders. And I, I played junior with Neil, junior hockey with Neil. And uh, when they made their first selection, they selected TJ Oshie seventh after I had picked six and took Broussard, who became a real solid player in the NHL, played a thousand plus games. And he took TJ Oshi, in the fans booed in Vancouver. And his owner was ticked off at him. So what, he was a funny guy's owner; He was a different cat. So Neil comes over to my table and he said, Doug, my owner's driving me crazy. He's mad at me because I." he said, is there any way you'll pop by the table and just say what a great pick I made? So I did that as a favor, which I still liked his his pick. By the way, I watched his pick from that draft, 2006 draft, playing last night on TV. So it ended up being a pretty good pick. TJ Osh or uh, not Oshie, but uh, Huckposo. So I walked by and I said, Neil, that was a great pick you made at seven. Really great pick. And the owner he, the owner backed off him so you do that for your buddies I mean you're in the trenches battling one another for wins and, lo- and losses but you still have to you know you try to help the guy the odd time you know so the owners are the owners get in your ear after the fact when the guy doesn't turn out because the owners are unique. They're barbers tell them what's wrong with the team. Their accountants tell them what's wrong with the team. Their wives tell them what's wrong with the team. Sometimes their girlfriends tell them what's wrong with the team. The fans are in the owner's ear, so they become become part of the fans. They really do the owners. They, they, They become hard on the head. And I work for great owners, great owners. Hard to believe. Every owner I had in my career when I wrote this book is not alive. They've passed. And I feel a little bad about that because, you know, I gave a few of them some shots in there. But anyway, Anyway, you know what? They're great people when they hire you. And I always say to my coaches, don't get uptight because the owner eventually is going to hate you. He hates you just a little bit quicker than he hates me. So just get used to that, you know. Owners are tough, man. They are tough. So
0: now in that period you've got before you make a decision and I know there used to be a time when you were all together in a convention center and now it's mostly online, but in that when the clock's ticking, how do you keep everybody calm and <laughs> not at each other's throat when it comes to trying to get their point across? Well,
1: because really what you do is you're looking at the list and it's really the it's really the the director of amateur scouting and his two key people, and you have twelve people at the table, but it's really a group of three, along with the GM, that really are the ones that are having the major conversation. The lesser guys, the n- younger scouts, the newer scouts, the regional scouts don't pipe in. It's the it's the, bo- the, the GM listening, director of amateur doing the talking and the assistant director of amateur relaying, And then they may ask a question to a guy from that region where the player's from anything else you want to add, but it's really calm there. And then there's great excitement when you make the pick and every draft I made had and right up until this past year, they're in 20,000 seat buildings. Now it's going to go to the NFL format of in, in, you know, without the fans, but it is an, Unbelievable atmosphere because you've got twenty thousand fans in a stadium, intently, and the the thirty two tables on the floor of the rink, you know, down on the rink, the rink floor, and you've got the tables there. Every team with their table of twelve people there, and it's it's really, and the fans are engaged in the draft because we talked about it and being in Montreal, and they had the first pick of the draft in Montreal. And the, Crowd, 20,000 people were going nuts when they were making their selection. So it's a pretty it, – it's one of the – and it, what you do is you move into a city like on a Tuesday before the Saturday draft and the excitement in that city is over the top, especially, you know, in every city it takes over the fan base and it's really exciting time.
0: Doug, you finished the book with some great advice for young players. You say, ultimately – It's about an individual chasing a dream with hard work and passion, but having a dream is not enough. So many talented people think they're outworking their competition, but that shouldn't be the focus. You have to embrace the journey. You have to want to push through that early morning workout when you don't feel like it or push through to stay late when everybody else has gone home. In many cases, it's about proving the naysayers wrong and grinding it out. True of life, I'd say, Doug, not just ice hockey. But is there a player yeah. or a story that you can leave us with that illustrates somebody who did this?
1: You know, I, I think about a couple of guys, and, and it was in the actual uh, the Sid Crosby draft, and we drafted um, a kid by the name of Adam Quaid, a second-round pick, and we drafted in the same drafted kid in the third round, Adam, or I should say Chris Russell, And another kid in the seventh round, Mark Mathod, and they all became NHLers. Those lesser drafted kids. I had a couple seventh round picks that that made it. I had a third round pick, Goldender, became a a rookie of the year in the NHL because of that, because of their character and how hard they worked and would do anything to make it. And I, I also said in the book, If you don't love the game, you have no chance to play in the NHL. You've got to love the game because of the sacrifices you have to make. And and not only that, your parents are a key part of it. I I say to my son, who's an agent in Chicago, Clark, if you you run into a, you want a player and his parents are crazy, run from him. Because there's a good chance you're going to have major problems with that kid. So you know what? I tried to do a little advice chapter at the end, and I've had a couple people actually send me notes saying, "Doug, that chapter should be on every dressing room wall in Canada, talking about you know the 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 parents and the advice to kids and coaches." It I I really enjoyed that chapter to be quite. It's not an advice; it's more. I guess it is advice, but just advice of my 24 years in the NHL is to what i saw but i i actually really liked writing that chapter
0: doug it's a great read i will put the link in the show notes doesn't matter whether you're into hockey or not for anybody yeah. that's interested in how the draft works or even the process of selecting people to join your team yeah. it's a it's a great read and i uh wish you all the best chasing down that hundred thousand dollars
1: <laughs> yeah okay man i appreciate i appreciate the support and i uh I I didn't envision selling a lot of books in Australia, but now, uh, okay, I'm I'm counting on you uh, getting that done for me over there. So give it a chance, you can, uh, most people just in the U.S. are buying it on Amazon. I don't know how you get it in Australia, but I'm sure you can get it off the link there. It shows you where you can buy it. But you know what? If you take melatonin to sleep at night, Put the melatonin away and read the book and you'll have a beautiful night's sleep as you pass
0: out. I don't think that's true, Doug, but we'll we'll leave it on that point. Great to (laughs) with you again. Thanks so much.
1: Appreciate it, man. Take care.
0: Hi, everyone. You have been listening to Doug McLean talk about his new book, Draft Day. I hope you got a lot out of it and found a few ideas that you can bring back to your own workroom table, lunchroom or locker room for discussion. Doug has terrific energy. There were some great stories there, particularly on how he goes about selecting people. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. It keeps us going. So if you have any comments, you can see the details on how to connect with us in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.